I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, so this week of learning, it was sponsored by Ken and Josie Stern. It's a week of learning in honor of the Yorkshire of Ken's brother. Um, I don't know why that makes sense, but the rabbi who was Nifter, his brother, Yosef Elimelech ben Ruvain, uh, his brother, who was a rabbi. And interestingly, um, one of the things that he was most famous for was the topic of Shmira Salashon, of watching what we say. And I watched a little video that the Village Shul sent along with this message about the sponsorship of the week. And it was a video of this Rabbi Stern talking about what he calls green speech. And he basically says, you know, that we're so concerned about the toxins in the environment and taking care of the world around us physically But our words, of course, have the ability to build worlds or to destroy, or what he says is to bring toxins into the world. And so it's fitting that we're going to begin our class again this week with a little uh, halacha of Shmira Salashon. And I also want to talk a little bit about the two courses, one that we just read and the one that's coming up, because they both actually deal very directly with uh, the gravity of using our speech in the right way and not in the wrong way. So just quickly from the book, uh, Guard Your Tongue, which is a compendium of laws from the Torah that directly relate to um, the the, um, laws of speech brought down by the Chafetz Chaim, so number two says, Lotisa Shema Shav, you shall not utter a false report. And this is telling us that we should not speak or accept Lashon Hara when we hear it. And again, the definition of Lashon Hara is true derogatory information. So we're not talking about false derogatory information, which has another heading. It's called Motsi Shemra. But this is actually true. So very often what happens is a person will say Lashon Hara and say, but I'm only saying what's true and thinking that, you know, this lets me off the hook. But this is the definition of Lashon Hara, that it's true. Okay. Now, the third one says, Hishamer which is saying that one must take heed concerning the plague of leprosy. And this is very um, apropos because in last week's Parsha, the Ha'alosicha, Miriam, Moshe's sister, speaks Lashon Hara to her brother Aaron about their brother Moshe. And even though we know that Miriam was a great Sadekis and a great personality, we learn from her the gravity of speaking Lashon Hara because not only was she afflicted with this disease called Sara'as, or what we would call leprosy today, but she was sent out of the camp for seven days. The entire Jewish people had to wait for her until she was re- able to join the camp. 
And the, one of the main lessons that we learned from this is that Lashon Hara, the per, speaker of Lashon Hara, what, what they come to do is separate people, right? Either they're making you look down on the person that they're speaking about or creating some kind of hatred, right? We're on the same team. We're against them. And rather than bringing the people together, unifying the Jewish people, which we know we just celebrated Shavuos, right? We were Ishechad, Belevechad. We were like one person with one heart. We were so close. We were so unified. Someone who speaks about others is separating, dividing, and therefore the punishment which Miriam got was that she was separated. So this is Mita Keneged Mita. This is measure for measure. That if you are going to separate others, then you need to be separated from others. So this is one of the things that we learned from last week's Parsha. And um, in this week's Parsha, we have the uh, Parsha of the spies, Parsha Shalach. The beginning of the Parsha deals with the Meraglim, who were going to search out or spy out the land as the Jewish people were preparing to go into the land of Israel after 40 years of wandering in the desert. And, oh, I'm sorry, that happened afterwards. They were going into Israel, right, after getting the Torah, etc. And um, we know that 10 of the 12 spies come back to the people with a very evil report, Lashon Hara, it's called. And here they were not even speaking about a person. They were speaking about the land of Israel, which, by the way, we, we have... We are not supposed to speak negatively about the land of Israel, even to the extent of the weather there, if you can imagine, right? We're actually people who are very careful about Lashon Hara in regards to the land of Israel, even complaining about how hot it is or how horrible it is or how terrible the weather is. We're not allowed to do that in the land of Israel. Canada, you're allowed all you want. So, you know, before you make Aliyah, just consider that. It's a little bit tougher to live there. A lot more is expected of us when we're in, in the Holy Land. But anyway, why did they speak Lashon Har? And I think this really relates to our topic of Tznias. Because one of the um, definitions or the main definition that we gave last week for the Mida, the character trait of Tzniut, of modesty, right? We know about modesty in terms of covering the body. Many of us grew up with that. Many of us maybe know about that. And for those of you who didn't, like myself, you know, it's not such a surprise. But what uh, the umbrella that covering one's body falls under is the definition of modesty as covering your ego. Now, the rabbis teach us that what motivated the great people of our generation and these spies that went in were considered the gadolim. They were the great leaders of our, that generation. But what motivated them to speak Lashon Har about the land um, was their own ego, their own worry that it would seem that once the Jewish people went into the land, positions would now change and perhaps they would not be in the same status-filled positions in their leadership roles as they were in the desert. And the rabbis teach us that this motivated them, this bias, this not being able to weed out one's personal agenda is what made them speak Lashon Hara. 
and say, we can't do it. We can't go in. It's impossible, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, there's many, many ways to understand this episode, but this is one of the main things that we learn. So again, this idea of sneas or covering the ego and lush and hara, the desire to speak badly, you know, very often it's our ego that motivates us to feel, to speak badly about other people, right? It makes us feel better. It makes us feel bigger. We dig a hole for the other person and now we've raised ourselves up, of course, in a very artificial way and not doing any of the real hard work, which is, you know, what is required to be able to develop better meat out. But of course, it's like a quick feel good, you know, and, you know, you, you gain, you're in the limelight. Everybody wants to hear what you have to say, right? And we said part of Stius is not thinking you're the bride at every wedding or the corpse at every funeral, right? Taking off the limelight from yourself and putting God um, in the limelight, so to speak, walking with Hashem, right? That was what we um, quoted. But I just want to say a few other things. I actually wanted to start start with a funny story, which I didn't. So now I'll tell it to you. I think um, I might have mentioned this story before, but my husband's been teaching Shmira Salashan in the mornings at the village shul. Um, and he reminded me of it. And it's just such a good example of how Lashon Hara begins. So for those of you who know Rabbi Hach, and I'm sure many of you do, Baruch Hashem, he's remarried and he lives in Lakewood now, but he was the rabbi of the village shul for many years, a wonderful, sweet man. Anyway, one day my husband and I were walking and I asked if we could stop at his house because I wanted to talk to him about something quickly. So I went up to the front door and my husband was kind of lagging behind me a little bit. He wasn't really so eager to bother him or whatever to go to him. Anyway, so I knocked on the door and it took a little while for um, Rabbi Hach to come to the door. And when he did come, he greeted me with the words, why are you bothering me? Okay, now that's what my husband heard, okay? Now what my husband didn't hear is that when Rabbi Hach came to the door, I had said to him previously, hi, I'm so sorry to bother you, okay? Now, Rabbi Hoff is a New Yorker. He's from Brooklyn, right? And he said very emphatically with that Brooklyn accent, which can sometimes scare you, right? He said, why are you bothering me? And what he meant was, you're not bothering me at all. Don't even, you know, go there that you're bothering me, right? But all my husband heard was, why are you bothering me? Anyway, so... You know, after I finished talking to him and we continue our little walk, you know, within 20 seconds, my husband turns to me and goes, wow. He goes, boy, that was really out of character, wasn't it? I mean, that, you know, you must have been shocked. And I said to him, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you heard what he said. He said, why are you bothering me? <laughs> you know? And I said, yeah, but, you know, it's because I said to him, I, I hope I'm not bothering you. So he hadn't heard that part. He had missed that part. Okay. Now, this is, you know, one of the fundamentals of Lush and Hara and what makes people get upset with other people. What brings on Lush and Hara is when we only have part of the story. 
when we're missing some crucial point, some crucial part that we, you know, are not privy to. And it's just so important to realize how quickly we jump to conclusions, how quickly we make deductions about other people that are negative. But if we really practice, you know, and become more aware of our natural inclination to go to the negative, right? Because I've said in other classes, human beings are wired for negativity. As Rev. Noah Weinberg used to say, we're like that dog that constantly goes to the hole, you know, when it's on a walk and the owner has to pull it out of the hole, get out of there, let's go. He sort of gives that metaphor, that image of human beings as well, that we, you know, we're wired for the negative. So that's why it's so hard to work on it. One other thing I want to say just in general about Shmiras Halashem is that, you know, Hashem gave human beings the gift of speech. When Hashem blew into the nostrils of Adam HaRishon, it says that he became a living spirit. And Rashi says he was Ruach Mamalale, which means he was a speaking spirit. Now, I know when people teach classes about the fact that, you know, human beings have speech, some people will right away say, well, animals speak too, you know, animals also speech, speak, you know, look at the dolphins, supposedly they are very, you know, um, elevated in terms of how they can speak to one another. But the point is that, you know, when's the last time you heard about animals putting out a magazine, you know? or, you know, creating a website. So obviously when people like to argue, well, you know, animals speak too. Humans speak on an entirely different level. And my son who called this morning offered this little nugget. He says, the koach of dibor, the power of speech is not just to say words, but to be able to articulate ideas. And that's what separates us from the animals. But we know that speech is a very powerful tool. And that's why we have so many laws regarding it. And as you know, as, as many people know, that is why Hashem gave us teeth, we're told, and lips to guard the, the tongue. The tongue needs two guards, right? The teeth to bite it when it's about to say something not right. And the lips. And the speak, the, the tongue, we're told, is more dangerous than a sword. Now, interestingly, I just saw that the word words and the letters of the word sword are exactly the same in English, which is interesting, right? Because it's telling us, again, that a sword can only kill once, and it can only kill the person closest to you. But words can kill many times over and over again. And of course, you don't have to be next door. You can be across the world. And your words will still reach that person one way or another, if not, um, you know, by the people listening to you, having the avera of accepting the Lushan Hara that you're speaking. But of course, there's so many stories of how people will say something innocently and somehow it ends up affecting the other person's life, right? Whether they lose a job or they don't get a shidduch or whatever it is. So again, what Hashem is telling us is when our speech is harnessed for good, 
we can build worlds. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Hashem built, right, creation. Hashem created the world through words. Let there be light, right? To show us the power of the word to build, to build other people through a compliment, through comforting words, through helping people build up their confidence. And this is the power of speech, that we can build worlds. So let's try to keep in mind during this time period, by the way, I believe there's 40 days now from Shavuos until the 17th of Tammuz, which is a fast day. Now, what was happening in Jewish history during this time? Basically, on Shavuos, you know, the whole Jewish people heard God. We were at the mountain, but we hadn't yet received the Torah. What happened after Shavuos, which is the time period we're in right now, is Moshe went up to Mount Sinai to get the Luchot now for 40 days. And these 40 days were days of incredible growth. The Jewish people were so anxious and elevated just through the preparing for the day of Shavuot. We know the 49 days, right, that we just went through. And they were anxiously awaiting the Torah, the Luchot that Moshe was going to come down with. So 40 always represents um, potential actualized. Okay? Like, for example, we have a lot of 40s in the Torah. But for example, it takes 40 days, we're told, from conception until a fetus becomes a viable entity, like a real thing. So 40 always represents sort of beginning with, you know, the start of something and somehow coming full circle. Now, ideally, that's what was supposed to happen to the Jews after these 40 days. But we know that the Yetzirah, the Satan, the Sitra Achra, whatever you want to call it, Whenever there's tremendous spiritual potential, for example, if the Jewish people had gotten the Torah and not done the sin of the golden calf, the world would have, com- would have immediately gone back to the state of the Garden of Eden. We would have passed the test and we would have brought the whole world back to, let's say, a Mashiach type of existence without having to go through all the agony of 2,000 years of Jewish history. But because, of course, the forces of evil, which we're experiencing today in the world, so we understand it a little bit, right? The forces of evil, of course, when the Jewish people are at their highest, come along and say, oh, you know what? Moshe's late. He was supposed to come down yesterday or this morning, and he's late. And guess what? I think he died up there. He's not coming back. We need somebody else. We need a new leader, etc. And everybody knows the story. So these 40 days now, until the 17th of Tammuz, which is the day that Moshe came down the mountain and broke the first set of Luchot, that's the period of time that we're in right now. And there are many, many... Uh, it, it's interesting. I didn't know when I started the Shmir Salashim thing, but it seems to be that's what everybody's learning right now. Okay, that's the thing that people are putting their focus on, is how to get better at being more aware of speech and the power of speech and what we say, right? Great people uh, speak about ideas. 
medium people speak about things. And small people, we have this expression even in English, speak about people. So let's be aware. Where are we holding here? How much of our speech is dedicated, you know, to speaking about people? Or are we speaking about ideas rather? You know, share with your friend an idea that you learned from this class today. Elevate the speech of those around you, right? Bring Torah into it. And it's good for you. It's good for the environment. It makes unpolluted air and green speech. And so um, this rabbi should have, this neshama should have an aliyah. Um, also a refuah shalema tefega chana basrachal. And um, just the names of those people that were wounded in Moron again. Eliezer ben Reuma, Yedidya Moshe ben Mira Miriam, Avram ben Chana Hinda, Azriel Yosef ben Chaya Michal, and Elkana ben Yael. Okay, so now we're going to continue with our topic of Sni'ut. Okay, so I'm taking a little bit of a deviation from Dina's lectures only because I really love this and I want you to know about this. And this is from Rabbi Meiselman's book, Jewish Women and Jewish Law, last week. Okay. And there's just one chapter or one little part of it that I think is very important and crucial as a foundational understanding of Sneud. So in last week's class, we said something very interesting. We said that there's only two places in the entire Tanakh that mentioned the word sni'ut. And one is in Micha, where basically it says, what does God want from you? What does God ask of you? And it says, you know, he wants you to do justice. He wants you to, you know, do chesed, do love, acts of loving kindness. And he wants you to walk modestly with your God. This is what Micha the prophet is telling the Jewish people. So, you know, Dina's Goonmaker's uh, question is, if Sneas is one third of the Torah, then it's got to be about a lot more than just how we dress, okay? It's got to be a very wide topic and encompass a lot of things. And of course, how we dress is a manifestation of what it is, but that's not all it is. And that's why it's important now that we have the ability to understand it better, to really delve into it. So one of the things we learned last week is that sneas means covering your ego at its root, not stealing the limelight, knowing your place, so to speak, when you're out in public. And the Gemara gave the examples of very public places when you're at a wedding. You know, not getting consumed by your own ego of like, everybody's looking at me. What are they thinking of me? Did I come late? Did I come early? Am I dressed right? Why am I at that table? You know, did, but, but rather realizing you're at the wedding with Hashem and all that noise and all that ego that's going on is really a distraction. Because if you're walking with Hashem in this very public place, you're there to bring Simcha to the Hassan and Kala. Hopefully you'll get a moment to talk to the Kala and say something meaningful to her or give her a reason to feel even happier about this great day. 
And of course, you know, we went to the dancing, right? The dancing isn't about you. The dancing is about making the bride happy. You're there for them. It's not, what are they feeding me? Do I like the hall? Do I, you know, like the way they, they did the flowers? And I don't uh, agree with that. I think it should have been this color. It really should have been that color. Whatever. I don't like this food. It should have, you know, whatever it is. I remember the last wedding, the food was so much better, right? They say that um, you can know a person by how he is praised. And there's actually a little diocon that says, no, the way you really know a person is what he praises, Right? So if all he can talk about after the wedding is the food, right? And that's what was really the ichor of the whole evening or who I sat with, whatever it is. The point is, is again, it's just, it's just shifting things a little bit and reminding ourselves what the center is supposed to be. Okay. And we said the same thing about a funeral, obviously, which is much less likely, but still we get caught up in our own self-talk in our own ego talk okay but what i want to talk about today is as much as we said that it's a myth that sneas is only external right because what we've been talking about is that it's really about developing our internality it's really about being bigger inside okay and you know as much as it's also about how we walk, how we dress, and how we talk, right? Obviously, it's near the way we even talk, right? Do we, are we discreet? Do we push ourselves forward? Do we interrupt other people? These are all part of Tsnias, right? Um, but, you know, even our dress, the idea is that our external, sorry, the external person that we put forth should be a manifestation of our internality that we've developed. You know, people can dress according to the law. We all know this idea, I'm sure. You can wear your skirt and you can wear your sleeves in the right place and your neckline up. But if everything is too tight or everything is fuchsia pink, like my fingernails right now, whatever, don't look. I said, <laughs> you know, if everything is loud and saying, look at me, then obviously maybe by the letter of the law, you're, you know, doing it. But obviously you're missing the whole spirit of what Sneas is supposed to be. You know, and you can have another person who doesn't dress like that. She's wearing pants even. And her pants are loose and her neckline is up a little higher. And of course, she's thinking, well, I, I think I'm, I mean, I think I, the way I get up and get dressed in the morning is motivated by my wanting to be more modest. Now, I'm not advocating not following the laws, the halacha of dress for women, because of course, that's part of being a Jew, looking different and having certain um, parameters of how to dress. But the point is, is yes, somebody who gets dressed in the morning and does it with a spirit of modesty, as opposed to somebody who might be following the letter of the law, but is missing the spirit of the law and doesn't recognize that your dress is supposed to be a expression of this covering of the ego, of this internality, then they're obviously missing the point. Okay. 
But we did say something about SNES not being just for women. Okay. And what I want to talk about today is how important it is that developing internality is for both genders. And that's why the two places in the Torah that talk about SNEAS are genderless. What does God want from you? Hashem's talking to everybody, right? Micha's talking to everybody. He wants you to be SNEAS. He wants you to walk modestly with God. What does that mean? And the second place where it says in Mishle, Shlomo HaMelech says that wisdom, intelligence, wisdom is with the SNEAS, the SNEAS. The, sneud, the the people who are private, the people who know how to cover their ego. That's where wisdom develops. Those are the truly wise people, okay? Now, as much as we said that sneud is for both, the, it would be wrong of me to pretend that women don't have an extra level of sneud that was given to them, okay? Developing... Uh, um, as, as Rabbi Meiselman says in his book, sneut is the inner directed aspect of striving. Okay, just again, if you want that definition, sneut is the inner directed aspect of striving. It's not external. It's developing oneself internally. Like I mentioned, our great grandmothers or our bubbies, you know, they had that developed internality you know, that they learned from their own mothers. They didn't need to get raises and go out to work necessarily and have everybody tell them how great they are and get plaques and get applause. They knew their place and they were happy with raising a family and bringing up the next generation. They understood how important that is, right? Just to deviate here, I remember Rebetzin Sikora Heller years ago, maybe it was the 80s, where she said she was once reading a Time magazine and it was all about the 10 most wealthy uh, men in the world. And one of the questions that they were asking these men were, who was the greatest influence on your life? Who do you feel got you to this level of success that you're enjoying today? And she said that of the 10 men interviewed, nine out of 10 went back to a family member. And of those nine out of 10, I think eight of them said it was their mother. Their mother was the greatest influence on their life. And this was in a time when perhaps mothers were not working outside of the house as much, okay? Or certainly not in, you know, high power positions outside the house. And basically they were saying that my success was due to my mother. Okay, just a side point. But um, Rabbi Meisman says that even though Tzniyat is an inner directed aspect of striving, he says women were enjoined to develop this trait of personality to its highest degree. And this is symbolized by the, by the fact that Chava was created from a part of the body, which is number one, which is private in two ways, right? We all know that Chava was created from the rib of man. So it's private in two ways. Number one, it's almost... It's mostly uh, clothed. Generally, it's clothed. And secondly, it's under the skin. And it's interesting because there's a whole medrash that talks about, I didn't find it, but I, I always liked it. You know, why didn't God create Chava from the head? Why didn't he create her, him, her from the feet, from the hip, from different places? And it says, well, there it also talks about, he created uh, Chava from 
Adam's side to show that we're completely equal, right? Equal in Judaism doesn't mean that we don't have different roles, you know, just like the Kohanim have a different role than the Leviim or than the rest of Kal Yisrael. It doesn't imply superior or inferior, but rather a different role, right? And so women are created from the side of men. And yet, because we were created from the rib, we are enjoined to have an extra level of internality, of tzni'ut. Now, this is just very important in general. Being more internal or private, or even hidden from view, does not imply inferiority in Judaism. You know, we live in a world today, of course, where women are hardly hidden from view in any way and show themselves off in every way. And, you know, that was prudeness and that was repression. And, of course, in Wendy Shallot's book and Wendy Shallot's continuing work on how the feminist movement and the lack of tzniot has ruined women's lives and the balances between men and women in terms of the, you know, the sexual world out there um, and how that's brought tremendous devastation. The point is, is that um, being hidden from view does not imply inferiority in any way. And I'm going to prove that to you. Now, it's interesting just for some of you who may not know this and it doesn't, you know, you may think different things about it, but there are actually Jewish magazines today that don't show pictures of women. There could be articles by women, there could be advertisements for women, but they don't show pictures of women. And some people will say, oh, that's terrible, that's horrible, why do they do that? That's so backwards, that's so, you know, uh, male chauvinistic, whatever you want, right? But the truth is, it is expressing this old idea, which is, you know, today old, which is, the private, the allowing women to be private is actually a way of um, expressing a certain dignity that men should have about women, not something to stare at, not something to look at and evaluate. Do I like the way she looks? Do I not like the way she looks? That we are more than just our external selves. And as great as the feminist movement, and in terms of some of the advances that it, it's made, to me, the fact that they never went after the whole idea of women being portrayed as sex objects or as pieces of meat or whatever that we know were still used to advertise this or that, that they didn't make that part of their campaign completely. I can't, I can't understand it. I can't understand how that went by them. You know, burn your bras and all that other stuff. But what about getting women not selling cars and all these other things? Why? Because we know it sells, right? And 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 um, anyway, okay, that's a different topic. Okay, but back to this idea of hidden from view does not imply inferiority. And where do we learn this? We learn this from men, from our great men in the Torah. Okay, first of all, Back to a woman, though, we all know the story about that when the angels visited Abraham, they asked Abraham, where is your wife? And Abraham answers, Sarah is in the tent. So there's a number of uh, commentaries there. One of the commentaries say, why did they even ask this question? How sneeze is that question? Where's your wife? You want to see your wife, right? <laughs> Back in the old days. And um, 
R Rashi says, they asked to endear Sarah to Avraham. Look at your wife. She's so tsanua, right? That, that Avraham had to answer, she's in the tent. But what Rashi says there is that what it means is Sarah is a private person. Okay? Now, even though Sarah's in the tent and she's hidden from view, so to speak, we know the rest of the story. What we learn about Sarah is that Sarah achieves greater prophecy than Abraham. And when Hashem comes along and tells Abraham to get rid of or to send away his son, Yishmael, right? The leader and founder of the Arabic people as we know them in the world today. Okay. Abraham does not want to do this. And Hashem himself has to interject and say, listen to your wife, Sarah. Her, her prophecy is at a higher level than yours. So just because Abraham took the public role in their life together implies nothing about per, uh, personal importance or spiritual greatness. Because the Jewish hero, Rabbi Meiselman says, is the hero of the inner stage, not the public stage. An example, and there are many throughout the Torah, but an example you all know is Jacob fighting with the angel. It takes place in private. Nobody sees it. His name is changed after that intercation, interaction, right? That battle with evil itself to Yisrael. We're called B'nai Yisrael because of that. He evolves to a higher level. But he has no human audience, only Hashem. Another example, Avraham and Yitzchak, they reach their highest point of their moral lives in the episode of the Akedah, when Avraham is taking Yitzchak to be sacrificed. And we know that they have two servants that are accompanying them, Eliezer and Yishmael. And they actually, as they're climbing the mountain, Avraham tells the two who are coming with them, you stay here, Yitzchak and I will go on alone. And again, there was a reason for that, because this great moment in Jewish history was going to take place not in front of any audience, but only God himself. Another example, Yosef in the house of Potiphar, right? Again, Yosef's being tested in terms of his moral excellence. Everyone's out of the house. Nobody's there to see it. Potiphar's wife seduces Yosef. And Yosef, and we, we sense his conflict, is able to withstand it. And there it says, and no member of the household was there in the house. Again, nobody needed to know. It was in private. But he was able to overcome and Rabbi Meisman says, how different is this from the Greek heroes, from Greek traditions? The essence of the Greek heroic act, which is where Western philosophy and, you know, culture emerges from. Because there, the essence of the Greek heroic act lies in its public appeal and its public nature. It's not the glorification of inner heroism but only about public display and public approval. 
Rav Yochanan, quoting the, the verse in Mishle says, and those who are private will achieve wisdom. The religious moral act takes place in private, far from the approval of the crowd. You know, we have a legend in Judaism about 36 hidden tzaddikim. Why hidden? Why shouldn't we know who they are? Why don't they have their names on the buildings? You know, why aren't we giving them all kinds of honor? Which, by the way, was the sin of the spies. They were worried about their honor. That's what got in the way of them being able to see the land properly. Their eyes were clouded over. So 36 hidden Siddiquim implies that the highest achievement is to be hidden, to hide your greatness. There were many great rabbis who didn't show what they knew. You know, they'd get up in front of a crowd and everybody was expecting to be wowed. And they would literally hold themselves back from showing how much they knew. Uh, I read about Rabbi Yisrael Salant, who was the leader of the Musser movement, that he never went anywhere with a sefer. So that, in other words, a lot of times we, people will take, a man will take a book with him, a, a Jewish book, and they'll sit and study it if they, you know, if their wives shopping for three hours and they got nothing else to do, instead of sitting on the bench and chewing gum and playing with their phone, they'll actually have a, a mishta with them or something. And that's what they'll do, right? And you can shop longer because of that. It's great. Okay. <laughs> but um, the point is, is Rabbi Yisrael Salant, it says he was on such a high level that he memorized the entire Gemara. And he was always thinking in it and always learning it, but he hid it. He didn't even have a book with him so that people could say, oh, look, he's always learning. Oh, look, whenever he's not doing anything, his book is always open. He didn't even want people to, know, to think that about him. So it was totally in private that he was going over the Torah. I know that's, you know, that's an example. It's a very high level, but there's many stories like this about great people hiding their greatness, which was an aspect of their tzniyot, of covering their ego, of not doing anything that in any way apply, implies showing off. Okay. Another story I heard um, coming up in the lectures, but I'll say it here, is there was a great rabbi, Rav Moshe Tversky, who was actually my son's rabbi, Zechot Tzadik Bracha in the Yeshiva Torah Moshe, um, he died during that Harnof massacre when they came into the shul. He was one of the niftarim there, and they were wrapped in their talis and tefillin, and that's how they died, which obviously was an indication of how incredibly holy they were, much like those people who died in Meron um, moments after they had said Shema and dying in such a way is really a very high level to go, you know, you'd rather go like that than eating a piece of chocolate cake, ladies, okay? You don't want to just choke on a piece of chocolate cake, God forbid, you know, but the point of the story here, Elizabeth's laughing, she got it, okay, um, just a quick story, he and his son uh, that came out at the Shiva, actually, um, he and his son heard about somebody in another neighborhood in Israel, which was about an hour's walk away, both ways, an hour each way, about someone who had an incredible lulav and esrog that was 
Mahudar Minha Mahudar, like <laughs> incredible. Okay. And you have to appreciate that to even understand the story. But basically, he and his son walked an hour to this neighborhood to be able to shake that Lulav and Estrog and walked back an hour to Harnov. But the thing that was incredible is that Ravtorsky was teaching his son on the walk back. I don't want you to think that you are any more special than any other Jew because we took this walk. That is not the point. You are no more special. And, you know, even if other people wouldn't have done this, they have other things that they do. And this is not making you any special or putting you in a different status or the place to look down at others, in other, in other words, than anybody else. So again, this lesson of sneut, of covering your ego. Interesting. Okay, back to the, the, this point. A lot, the last idea I want to say, and I mentioned it last week, is there's a, a saying in Tehillim, in Psalms, Kol Kavuda Bas Melech Penima. And anybody who went to Beis Yaakov, they heard this, they heard this over and over again. It basically means this is sort of the catchphrase for why girls have to be more tsanua than men in terms of our dress. And again, we all know that religious men are very careful to dress modestly. This is why they wear the color black, for example, you know, in Haredi circles, because black is considered a color of humility or a non-color, right? Women, on the other hand, halakhically, are allowed to dress in colors. We need colors. We need to dress ourselves up. We have a different relationship to clothing generally, right? Not always. You have men who are very finicky about what they wear, etc. But generally, women, you know, that's why we get, you know, men are told that, you know, the halakha is buy your wife a jewelry, get her a new outfit for the holidays, because that will make her happy, right? She never has enough pair of shoes. I know you've counted 25 in her closet, but you don't get it. It's not about the shoes. It's about buying the shoes, okay? It's not about how many dresses she has. Men, it's about buying the dresses and having more. And that's just a female thing, right? But the point is this. Kol Kavuda Basmelech Penima actually refers to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe is called a but by the end of his life. Again, if we want to say that women are inferior, well, I guess not, because the greatest accolade that Moshe was given at the end of his life is he was called the daughter, the daughter of the king. In other words, he had achieved a level that for women, to some degree, we start with naturally, this inwardness, this internality, that we naturally have. I wanted Linda McGarvey's dresses because I felt too exposed. You know, I wanted my friend, my Baptist friend next door's dresses that were past her knee. You know, even if it was subconscious or we trade, you know, because most women have a natural sense of, you know, we have to unlearn at the same time that, of course, you know, I remember my Rebison saying, you know, women like to show off their bodies. And my mother, who was an artist, would always say, because a woman's body is much more beautiful than a man's. It's just got way more curves. And for an artist's eye, it's just so much more interesting. Okay? And so much more beautiful. 
But the point is, we could debate that, ladies, but that's okay. But the point is, is that Moshe Rabbeinu was called a daughter at the end of his life. So this verse that says the entire glory of the daughter of the king lies on the inside. That's what the verse means. Right? The glory of the daughter is on the inside. Now, we usually, like I said, we use this verse in relationship to women and the female role, but it's really referring to the private nature of the religious experience. Moshe is called the daughter of the king because he's the one who brings the Torah down to the Jewish people. And the king in this verse refers to Torah. Okay. So again, true achievement is always in the private sphere in Judaism, hidden from the public eye. Moshe meets God alone. The Kohen Gadol goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur alone. It's not the gladiator fights of the Romans and the Greeks. It's not the multitudes of people cheering and clapping for you that prove your greatness. However, both public and private are necessary aspects of life. Going back to the idea of the public, okay? Being at the wedding, being at the funeral, we have to go out into the world. Of course, part of the world is the external public world. Both public and private are necessary aspects of life, and neither sex is restricted to either area. But our tradition does give extra emphasis to the dominant sphere for women being the private sphere. Though even a man whose primary domain is public still must be reminded that the highest achievements that he will accomplish are done in private. Okay? So somebody might not see you do that act of kindness or know the struggle you're having between staying on the phone with that person who wants to talk to you for an hour and missing your program that you wanted to watch. You know, that Zoom sheer with Devorah Vale that you really wanted to watch live. You know, nobody will know about that struggle, but those are the greatest struggles. Those that nobody knows about, those that are done in private. Hashem has your picture on his fridge, right? You are in the limelight always when it comes to your place in Hashem's world. Okay, so I just wanted to share that with you because I think Rabbi Meiselman very much um, expresses this idea very, very well. One other idea, just because we talked about being hidden from view, is this idea of invisibility. So I don't know if I read that in his book or somewhere else, but it also was a real mind shift because it was saying that, you know, in the secular Western world, being invisible, being private, being inward, being in the house, as you know, some of the great sages or rabbis would say, I don't call my wife my wife, I call her my home, right? We're called in the Torah, Beit Yaakov, hence the name of the schools. 
right? We're the house of Yaakov. We're not called, uh, you know, when God brings the Torah to the men and the women, he calls us Tagid Lebeit Yaakov, right? Sorry, Tomar Lebeit Yaakov, the Tagid Lebene Yisrael. The women are called Beit Yaakov. We have Beit, we're the house, we're the home, we're the private sphere. That's where our power is. So somebody once said that it's interesting that superheroes, right, in cartoons and in movies, one of the qualities that a superhero has to have is they have to be able to make themselves invisible, right? Isn't that interesting? They have to be able to be invisible so nobody can see them. So we think of invisibility in terms of the feminist movement and the women's movement and the whole outbreak and out bursting of women on the scene for good and for bad, okay, um, as a great progress. But one of the things that we've given up is that superhero power of invisibility, which actually allows the superhero to do things and go places and make things happen without anybody seeing, without being quiet, right? You know, it's like that famous line from the Greek wedding. If you, I'm sure you all saw that, you know, where, where the, the, the husband says, I'm the head of the family, right? I'm the head of this family, but she's the neck. She's the neck. And she turns me whichever way she wants me to go. Right? So this is a very Jewish idea. Right? The neck. Who cares about the neck? The neck joins the head to the body. Obviously, there's a lot of deep implications about the neck. But the face, the panim, that's the external. That's the public. That's the man. I'm the head. But of course, the funny idea, which is very true, that she's the one who is in control of, you know, when she understands her power and she knows how to use it appropriately and properly and that's a whole nother series of lectures right and something that we're always you know working for for those of us who are in relationships um but okay i think we'll end here ladies if anybody has something to add hope you enjoyed this class to sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale at Yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vale, V-A-L-E, at Yahoo.ca.